0: Hello, podcast listeners. I want you to be among the first to hear about Somley, a new way to discover, shop, and interact with wineries. Somley is an online marketplace where wine enthusiasts can explore wineries, join wine clubs, read reviews, and buy or give the gift of Texas wine. Similar to Etsy, Somley enables artisan wineries to sell their wines direct to consumer and cut out the middleman. Somley's marketplace will be launching in Texas very soon. To learn more, or apply to join, visit Somley.com and be sure to follow at Somley.wine on Instagram. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 40. My guest today is Dr. Justin Shiner from the Viticulture and Enology Department at Texas A&M University. I enjoyed talking to him about some troubling Texas wine topics, including drifting herbicides and pest management, but also some fun topics like the resources available for winemakers and grape growers. It's a timely interview since there was a major story published by Texas Monthly on the topic of herbicide drift. There's some other Texas wine news as well, including a big auction showing for a Texas wine at the Houston Rodeo, a new winemaker for Los Pinos Ranch, and a bankruptcy filing from the largest winery in Texas. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. First, the major story on the herbicide drift issue, Plaguing the High Plains. It appeared on TexasMonthly.com on February 22nd. The story's author is Houston-based business writer Michael Hardy, and that story has been shared widely on social media and also on TV news. I've seen a lot of comments on the article on social media from people in the Texas wine industry about the severity of the problem and about how the EPA and the Department of Agriculture have let down Texas farmers. You've heard on this podcast before about the lawsuit that 57 High Plains grape growers have filed against Bayer and BASF, the makers of the herbicide in question. The article is a whopping 4,500 words that explains the issue in detail and also has some extensive quotes from Texas High Plains grape growers, including Andy Timmons and Cliff Bingham, From winemakers Chris Brendret and Paul Bonarigo, and also from Cody Besant, the CEO of the Plains Cotton Growers. That's an industry lobbying group for the cotton industry, and they reject the idea that dicamba is responsible for the damage to the High Plains vineyards. The article's author even got statements from BASF and Bayer, who believe that severe winter weather is responsible for any damage to the vineyards in the High Plains. I'm going to link to the article in the show notes and would suggest that you read it. The article is only on TexasMonthly.com and not in the actual print magazine. Because this is such an important issue for Texas wine, I'm planning to interview the article's author for an upcoming episode. If you have questions for the author, please share them with me and I'll do my best to get them answered. Next, Mesa Vineyards LP filed for voluntary Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection January 20th in the Western District of Texas. Fort Stockton-based Mesa Vineyards is the largest winery and vineyard in Texas and makes value-driven wines, most notably the St. Genevieve brand. A year ago, Wine Business Monthly named Mesa Vineyards the 49th largest winery in America with total case production of 350,000 cases. Texas Wine Lover website says the vineyard there is 500 acres. According to the Austin Business Journal, Chapter 7 Bankruptcy Protection typically provides for the liquidation of the business's assets to satisfy creditor claims, while Chapter 11 Protection enables a business to restructure its obligations with the goal to remain a going concern. Again, Mesa Vineyards has filed for Chapter 7 Bankruptcy, which looks like liquidation. Last week, Curtis, 50 Cent Jackson, and other heavy hitters attended the 2022 Rodeo Uncorked Champion Wine Auction and Dinner in Houston. The winning wines from the wine competition were auctioned, and 50 Cent went in with Sire and Spirits LLC to purchase the top Texas wine, which was the High Meadow Winery Boom Red from the Texas High Plains. That was a 2017. The purchase price was a whopping $125,000. 50 Cent posted a photo with a caption saying, So I finally won a bid at the wine auction. You're a nobody till you win a bid at the wine auction. Now I have a bottle of wine that costs more than a Rolls Royce. I just got excited. Next up, Los Pinos Ranch Vineyards has a new winemaker. Jason Moore was born and raised in Texas and has spent the last 20 years in the Napa Valley. He currently runs Modus Operandi Cellar and Vicarious Wines. That winery currently makes over 3,000 cases of wine and is mostly sold direct to consumer. Jason's a self-taught winemaker. He grew up in Dallas and was a waiter at some high-end restaurants, and that's where he caught the wine bug. Los Pinos is in East Texas in Pittsburgh, to be precise, and they've also got a tasting room in Fredericksburg. Los Pinos was founded in the year 2000, and they produce about 10,000 cases of wine annually. They use grapes from their estate vineyard in East Texas and also from the High Plains. In a Facebook post, Jason wrote, One hell of a commute, but I'm looking forward to putting my fingerprint on some Texas wine. I've known the owners for about 10 years, and I truly can't wait to help them elevate their brand in the great state of Texas, the state that I love dearly. Looks like nothing will change at modus operandi. Jason said, I've been making wine for other brands for most of my career, and this is no different, just a longer commute. Coming soon to Granbury... They're opening a wine and vineyard information center that will provide winery information for consumers looking to learn about wineries in the area. The center hopes to open by April when they'll host the Granberry Wine Walk. There are eight wineries in Granberry and a few more pretty close by, and the information center will certainly help people find their way around the cute town of Granberry. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This podcast is sponsored by the Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program, a program at the Texas Department of Agriculture that assists the Texas wine industry in promoting and marketing Texas wines and educating the public about the Texas wine industry. Texas wine has a rich history that dates back to the Spanish missionaries that settled around El Paso as early as 1650. The Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program wants every Texan to know that Texas not only grows grapes and makes wine, but Texas is the fifth largest wine-producing state. Texas is bigger than France, and like France, offers a wide range of growing environments, grape varieties, and wine styles. Grapes are grown in each of the eight American Viticultural Areas, or AVAs, in the state, as well as in vineyards that are located outside of AVAs. You can learn more about the TDA's Texas wine marketing efforts by visiting UncorkTexasWines.com. You'll also be able to view the latest video promoting Texas wine. It's called We Pour Big in Texas. Dr. Justin Shiner is Associate Professor and Extension Viticulture Specialist in the Department of Horticultural Sciences at Texas A&M University. Justin has a B.S. in Horticulture and Crop Science from Sam Houston State University an M.S. in Molecular and Environmental Plant Sciences from Texas A&M University, and a Ph.D. in Horticulture from Cornell University. Justin is part of the team at a and that not only trains students for a future in viticulture and oenology, but they also help those currently working in Texas wine industry to plan and problem-solve current issues in viticulture and oenology. Here's our interview. So, Justin, tell me, please, how Texas A&M fits into the Texas wine industry. What are you doing down in College Station?
1: All right. Well, we're doing a lot in College Station, um, but it's not just College Station, I should point out. We have centers scattered across the state, and then we have one in Lubbock and one in Fredericksburg, where we have a concentration in viticulture and ology. But I'll start here in College Station and kind of tell you a little bit about what we're doing you know, am has been around for uh, many, many years. Obviously, working in agriculture. And Dr. George Ray McKittrin, to give you a little history, he started at Texas A and M in 1969 as a pecan specialist. And as the you know grape and wine industry started to grow in the 1970s, uh, he was there. You know, from its infancy, he's actually still here. Uh, he retired in 2001 as an extension specialist that worked with with grapes. Uh, he re-retired in. 2001, and he's back for his third go round. Just a little history. So, we've been at it for quite a while. Um, but as of recent, we've grown our programs quite a bit. And now I'm here and I work as an extension viticulture specialist. Andrea Bodazatu is our extension enologist. Uh Fran Pontash is an extension viticulture program specialist. And I'll explain the difference between her and I here in a second. We're all in College Station. Uh, Whereas if you go out to Fredericksburg, there's a viticulture and fruit lab there. Jim Commis, who's been working in the state in viticulture for quite some time. J.C. Lewis, Bree Crowley, they all work in viticulture. Out in the High Plains in Lubbock, we have an extension center where Dr. Pierre Elwi, who uh, actually is just announced that he is going back to France after six years. Um, So he is still currently out there and so is Danny Hillen. And we'll be, uh, you know, the, the show must go on, so we are going to uh, try to find someone to fill his his shoes there uh, very soon in Lubbock, and then in North Texas, uh, Michael Cook. So there's quite a number of us around the state, and if you were to say, well, you know, what are, what are we doing? There's a lot of pieces to it. You know, Texas A&M is the land grant, and most people probably know what that is, but if you don't, you know, we have the university side, just like any other university, but Part of the land-grant mission, of course, is the outreach component, which is what the extension service is. There was a, a series of acts historically that established this land-grant system across the U.S. to support agriculture. So you go to any state and you're going to find a land-grant institution that has an extension service. So we also have a research arm. And the purpose of the extension service is exactly what the name implies, the extension of the university system you know, out into the community Indirect support of agriculture. So here at AM we have all three components. We've got the academic side, we've got the extension side, and then we have the, the research side.
0: That that is definitely a lot going on. I've seen more and more information about A&M um, programming that would help grape growers, winemakers, and also just general consumers and understanding more about wine. how do you spend most of your time? what do you what does your day look like or your week look like? Yeah
1: uh, it, it it's totally unpredictable, which is what I like about the job honestly um, except for the teaching part. the teaching part is predictable. So I do teach a couple of courses uh, in the spring I teach a viticulture course, you know grape growing and then I have a, a wine course that's that's fairly large that I teach as well. And so I have a teaching appointment, and I also have an extension appointment. And on the extension side, a lot of it's research based. So I have uh, uh, several graduate students—five that are uh, in the program, either PhD or master's students—and they have research projects. So that's a component of it. Um, but also the outreach component that you mentioned—programs, technical support—that's what makes my day unpredictable. Is a uh, I may have big plans for a day, and then I get a phone call, and I might be in the truck driving to uh, you know, a vineyard or something like that to, to help with the problem. So it's a really fun job.
0: Well, I took a look at your CV that I found online, and it's very long, as are most CVs for academics. But one of the research topics that I noticed that, that I think is interesting, I'm going to have you start out talking about Pyrazines. Can you tell me what do you want your students to know about pyrazines, and what do you want your grape growers to know about pyrazines?
1: That was that was a project I did as a, a graduate student uh, quite a long time ago now, um, and pyrazines was the was the thing at the time. Everybody was working on on pyrazines, and so pyrazines are a, a class of aroma compounds, and they're odor active at these really tiny concentrations, which one, makes them interesting to study, and two, makes them really hard to study. And so by low concentration, I'm talking about uh, you can smell or detect these things at uh, one to two parts per trillion in water. You know, you can't really wrap your mind around that, but a, a, a comparison would be uh, you take a, you know an eyedropper and you add a drop or two to an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and now it stinks like bell peppers. So... We were really unable to quantify these things uh, until really the 1980s. That's when the technology came along. It got better and better and better. And then uh, when I went to graduate school at that time, uh, there was quite a bit that was known about the pyrazines and there were still a lot of unknowns. And so these compounds are not in all grapes, at least at detectable levels. But they do give some cultivars, the Bordeaux cultivars, you know, cab Merlot, ruby cab, I've noticed, um, we'll have often a bell pepper aroma, Sauvignon Blanc, and it's, it's these class of compounds. And so typically we think of it, um, most of the time as, as undesirable because it's a sign of, uh, you know, immature fruit, but it can also be part of the var- uh, varietal character or a style of a wine. So in a cool climate, we may expect a little more of that, uh, bell pepper asparagus type of aroma in say a Sauvignon Blanc, whereas in a in a hot climate, we're less likely to see that. So that's probably where I would leave it, unless you want to start uh, getting into the weeds and talking about research, which uh, we, we can do that.
0: <laughs> that. That may be beyond the scope of uh, most people listening. I had to ask you that because in my wine tasting group the other night, um, we got on the subject of parazines. And I think I don't have a very strong receptor to pick that up in a wine. And that's mm. a lot of people's first clue when blind tasting of what a wine might be. And I just have trouble picking those flavors up sometimes. And I don't guess it's always a bad aroma because like you said, it could be just a character of the variety.
1: Well, that's kind of interesting in itself because we all have different sensitivity levels, you know, to different compounds. You know, some people are totally insensitive. You call them anosmic. Um, so you get these detection thresholds or basically like an average of the average person might detect this this in wine. And so in red wine, it might be, you know, 8 to 15 parts per trillion. But for you, you may not detect it until it's, you know, 40 or 50 parts per trillion. So we do have those inherent differences. But the other aspect, when you're talking about any flavor compound, it could be something that stinks. I don't know, cork taint, TCA uh, reduction. If it's in a low enough concentration that you can't really identify it, it just adds complexity to wine. So that's kind of interesting too.
0: Yeah. And we like complexity in wine. So there's a fine balance, I guess. Um, On to a different topic. Mm-hmm. I saw a quote that, that you made back in 2017. And you said, if you were going to say what is the number one limiting factor to grape production in Texas, it would be Pierce's disease. So can you talk about what Pierce's disease is, how it has invaded vineyards and some of the things that we're doing to combat Pierce's disease?
1: Sure. Well, and, and if you wanted to, uh, you know, award somebody the uh, Mr. Pierce's disease award for Texas, uh, you know, the the expert, it's going to be Jim Comis, uh in Fredericksburg. And he's been studying and working on Pierce's disease research for uh, well over a decade. Myself, I've been here at A&M since 2014. And I'm working in College Station, this is uh, one of those areas of the state where Pierce's disease is a major limiting factor. And so this disease, uh, it's not new. It's been around for as long as we know it. It's, it's endemic or from the U.S. Gulf Coast, and it's a bacterium. And it lives in a number of different plants, and it doesn't really cause any problems. It lives in the conductive tissue, the water-moving tissue. But if it's introduced into grapes, specifically European grapes and some of the hybrids of European grapes, it more or less or crudely put clogs up the pipes and uh, kills the plants. What makes it challenging for us here in Texas is one, the bacterium's widespread, but two is it's moved around or vectored by insects. And we have a, a lot of those insects that are capable of moving the bacterium from one plant to another. And so that makes it a major limiting factor for us for those reasons. It does exist on the West Coast, and it has. Uh, it's, it was characterized uh, a very long time ago as Anaheim's disease in California, but uh, it wasn't so important to them until uh, one of our insects was introduced there in the 90s by accident, and then it became a much bigger problem for them.
0: And so I understand it spread by... Glassy-winged sharpshooters, is that
1: right? That's one, that's one species, <laughs> One of the yes. ways, okay. Yeah, and so, you know, going back to some of the work that, that, that Jim Comis, uh and those folks in Fredericksburg did is, it was initially, it was asking questions like, well, is it just the glassy-winged sharpshooter? As it turns out, it's actually quite a number of species of related insects that we have here in Texas. Uh, and on the West Coast, there were related insects, but one of the major differences between theirs and ours is those did not fly nearly as far. Whereas the glassy wing sharpshooter can fly up to a mile in a single single flight, uh, so there on the west coast it tended to be more of a limited edge, maybe edge effect in a vineyard, um, more associated with repairing areas where there's water in the summer, where there's insects and things like that. Introduce the glassy wing sharpshooter there, and uh, you know that changes the game.
0: Mm-hmm. I've never heard the term edge effect. Does that just mean something that would impact the edge of the vineyard but not the middle? Right,
1: right, right. Oh. right. Yeah, but you know, if 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 the insect doesn't fly as far, it's less mobile, you know, and and it's coming from the outside of the vineyard, it's less likely to uh, you know, move across the entire vineyard. We'll see those effects too with some other insects, maybe grape berry moth, uh where mm. they may come from the wild grapevines in the woods, so they're probably more likely to, you know, first see them at least in the edge of the, that side of the vineyard.
0: Okay. Well, one of the things I know some people are trying to try to combat some of these issues is is planting different grapevines. And um, I know there's some new grapevines um, coming out of UC Davis, I believe. They call them the Andy Walker clones. Is that right?
1: Yes. There's, there's a number of different names for them. But yeah, that's probably the most, uh, most common name. Um, Tell me about those. Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you take all the, you know, you read, uh, you know, one of the one of the wine books, you may you may hear that there's, you know, five to 10,000 named grape varieties or cultivars around the world. And they're almost all from one single species, the European grape, vitis vinifera. And we've developed over time hybrids, which are you would take vitis vinifera and you could cross it with one of our wild grapes, plant the seed, and now it's half European and then half wild. And that's been done for, you know, well over 100 years as uh, Europeans colonized, you know, the, the Americas. They tried to grow the vinifera grapes and they struggled for various reasons, Pierce's disease included. And so they started to make hybrids or it would happen by accident. And occasionally there would be a hybrid that could tolerate Pierce's disease or resist it. And so our native grapes, they can carry the bacterium. But it typically does not uh, cause any damage, or at least it doesn't kill them, and they remain productive. And so if you crossed, I don't know, cab with the wild Mustang grape here in College Station, some of those seedlings are probably going to have resistance to Pierce's disease. Now, they may taste like Mustang grape and be no good, but nevertheless, they would survive. And so we have hybrids, and we've grown some of them historically, like black Spanish, which is also known as Lenoir Jacquez. It's one of those hybrids that tolerates or resists Pierce's disease. So it can carry the bacterium, you can, you know, find it in the vine, it remains productive year after year after year. Now, you know, I'm I'm not going to disparage the flavor profile of black spanish by any means, but it's it's distinct, it's different. It is not a replacement necessarily for a cab type palate. Uh, but, it, but it lives and thrives and it's productive. And so that's kind of what we relied on is those few hybrids. Blanc de Bois is another one that was developed in Florida to be resistant or tolerant to Pearson's disease. Now, once uh, Pearson's disease became a much larger problem or, or potential problem in California, they started directing some of their efforts to uh, combat Pierce's disease. And, and one thing they did is the great breeder there, Andy Walker, started breeding for tolerance or resistance to Pierce's disease. With modern breeding techniques, what he was able to do is take one of the native grapes to Texas, Vitus Arizonica, which is the scientific name of this native grape, and he was able to cross it with our mainstream European grape varieties, Cab, Merlot, Chardonnay, and with marker-assisted selection, so he's able to basically look for the, the gene or genes that confer tolerance to Pierce's disease and cross and continue to make crosses and develop resistant or tolerant grapes that are very much vinifer or European-like. <clears throat> and so it works kind of like this. He takes uh, Merlot, for example, and he crosses it um, with Vitus arizonica, plants the seeds. They're half Merlot, half arizonica. Looks for those genes. If they're there in the seedling, then he can now cross it again to, I don't know, Chardonnay or Merlot. Now it's 75% genetically European takes that those seedlings, crosses it again, and now it's 84%, does it again, it's 88%. One more time, it's 94%, and then finally one more time, and it's 97% European. So it's very much European uh, in almost all ways, except for that resistance to Pierce's disease. And so you can imagine this took some time to do, uh, and in 2019, they named and released five of these varieties, they are, uh, one of them is 94% genetically European and it's called Caminari Noir. And then there are four others that are 97% uh, European or vinifera. They're Paciente Noir, which is uh, a red wine grape, uh, Arante Noir, which is another red wine grape, Ambulo Blanc and Caminante Blanc, which those are both white wine grapes. And so that's, that's pretty exciting for us to, uh, have some new grape cultivars that are, like I said, very much uh, vinifera-like in in all ways, uh, except for that Pierce's disease tolerance.
0: So those just became available in 2019. So we probably haven't yet had wine from those plants.
1: Well, we 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 have and we have not. It depends on the on the on the one you're talking about. Um, so Jim Thomas, back to back to you know uh, I don't want to call him Mr. PD, but uh, <laughs> you know the guy who's done the most PD work here, research-wise. He got material. He got some of these selections from UC Davis, uh, what, over 10 years ago now and trialed them because if you're trying to study for, you know, Pierce's disease tolerance, what better place to do it than, than somewhere like Texas where we have a lot of pressure, as we would call it, lots of disease potential. And so one of those we've grown for quite some time, that's Kaminari Noir. That's that 94%. And so we have it in our research vineyard in College Station. We've made wine from it. Jim Thomas uh, and his group has made wine from it several times. So we have a, a pretty good feel for, for that one. We've also had wine from the West Coast uh, from it. Uh, at, at Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association Grape Camp last year, uh, we also had, uh, I believe we had Orante Noir, if I'm not mistaken, and Common Noir uh, from uh, Whitehall Lane Winery in California. Now, what we don't have on those other four varieties is any sort of data, whether it's from the field because we have not trialed them here in Texas or in the winery. And so I'll make a pitch to your listeners now. If anyone has planted those grapes, we would love to know about it because we have to study them on the fly, learn as absolutely as much as we can about them and share it back with everyone else because there's, there's certainly some unknowns out there that uh, we want to find out about.
0: Well, that's exciting. I hope that they'll they'll be delicious and solve a lot of problems. Um, I feel like we're going from one problem to another, but I do have another major problem to ask you about, which is uh, what's going on with the topic of herbicide drift. There was a big article just last week from Texas Monthly about how the Texas wine industry is um, severely threatened just as as soon as the modern wine industry was getting so hot. So what can you tell us about uh, the problems around dicamba?
1: Sure. Now, Now I think a lot of people – well, everyone in the industry is, is aware of it at this point, but uh, for, for listeners that are not familiar, uh, the conversation here is related to uh, herbicides that are used in primarily we're talking about farm fields and potential to injure grapevines. And you sort of have to give a little history for it to make sense. And so if you go back into the 90s, uh, transgenic cotton corn soybean was developed, genetically modified if you want to call it that to uh, resist glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. And everybody knows Roundup is the uh, <clears throat> the weed killer that uh, kills to the root, as the commercial says. You know, it's, you spray it on the plant, it goes to the root, it kills the whole plant. It's very effective. And so the idea there was if you could develop cotton that didn't die, it could detoxify in some way this herbicide, then you could apply it over your farm field and control weeds very effectively and efficiently, you know, increasing potential uh, profitability of farming and that's what was done and around that same time there were researchers maybe academics like myself out there saying well if you apply glyphosate you know over many hundreds of thousands millions of acres of farmland a weed or weed species are going to develop resistance to this and i think we all know about that now with in covid you know in the in the covid era post covid era Uh, This naturally happens every time, you know, cells multiply, DNA copies itself, there's a chance there's an error, you know, a deletion mutation of some sort where uh, it may result in a change, it may not, most of the time not, but one out of a billion, one out of a trillion might develop resistance, some way to not to detoxify or deal with this glyphosate and that's what happened uh, and has happened in numerous weed species and so what do you do at that point? Well, you then develop uh, tolerance or resistance in your crop to another herbicide, and you you switch. And so that's what's been done. And now that's that's led us to uh, crop tolerance to the auxin herbicides, uh, which are this, this class of herbicides that act as plant hormones. They're basically synthetic plant hormones. And broadleaf plants, so non-grass plants are sensitive to these, and, and you could apply it. Over your cotton, if it's resistant, you know if it's genetically engineered, and control the weeds that way. Grapes are incredibly sensitive to this this class of herbicides, and so I think Neil Newsom put it put it best. It was at uh, Texas Wine and Grape Growers Grape Camp. It was several years ago. He was talking to uh, someone uh, who was representing Texas Department of Agriculture, and one of the big challenges with these herbicides is they have this. Uh, uh, characteristic that they can volatilize. So you apply them, they go from a a liquid or solid state, and then they go into a gas state and they can move off of your your target. These new formulations, uh, they'll have some other molecule attached to them, which makes them less volatile. And the number that the uh, uh, representative from TDA gave was something like, you know, 90, 95% less volatile. And Neil Newsom stood up and he said, uh, so what you're telling me is if I dumped out a box of rattlesnakes here in this room and I said, don't worry, folks, ninety, 95 percent of them don't bite. You have nothing to worry about. And that that was good perspective right there because the idea here is, you know these are these these formulations and when they're applied uh, correctly, and there's a, a lot of requirements to apply these to the crop, uh, the risk of, of volatility is is relatively low. But if we're talking about you know millions of acres of of cotton, in Texas, several million acres, you know, very close in proximity to very sensitive grapes and other crops as well, Then even a very small rate of area. And if you said, you know, 99.9% of the time, there's not going to be a problem. That still means, you know, a tenth of a percent of the time that you're going to have a problem. And so historically, you know, since their release, what, what we've uh, observed is, is quite a bit of, of injury, quite a bit of symptoms. Um, I wouldn't say, and, and no one would say it. it's every vine in the high plains, but, uh, you know, and I'm not up there all the time, but going up there, especially late summer, it's, you know, every vineyard you walk into, you can find symptoms. Uh, you know, that is a, that in itself is a, is a, is a major challenge because you're, you're injuring the grapevines. And it's, it's kind of complicated because the question always is, is, you know, well, what's the long-term impact of this? And from a scientific perspective, There are always going to be things that are, you know, unknown and and difficult to predict, but we know it we know it injures the crop. We know that there are differences in sensitivity by cultivar. We know there are differences in sensitivity or potential for damage by growth stage. And then of course, you know, what's the concentration? How much actually gets into the plant? And so it's complicated. And then furthermore, if you say, well, what happens if it happens twice in a season? What happens if it happens three times or year after year? And we know it's a you know, it's chronic, it's a stress, and it's going to weaken the plants. Uh, and then so then it begs a lot of other questions. Well, we had winter injury last February with winter storm Uri. Was that because of the cold temperatures or were the vines stressed because of this herbicide injury issue, which then predisposed them more to injury? So it's a, it's a very complicated, and complicated problem, and it's a, it's a very serious one.
0: Well, best case scenario, if this um, product was taken off the market and the the grapevines could start healing, um, we we don't know, I guess, exactly what that would look like. But we anticipate that through through new growth that they would kind of heal from the injury that they've had.
1: Well, that's that's tough because you know um, if you take a, a a plant like that, that's a perennial, that's long lived, and you weaken it um i don't know we'll say we, the vineyard was sold somebody didn't water it for an entire year it was very stressed it can predispose it to diseases and problems that it otherwise would have been able to resist and so then it may the life of that vineyard may appear as though it's now you know been rejuvenated it's growing but it may actually shorten the life of the productivity long term so it's it's those kind of unknowns that are that are quite difficult you know to predict furthermore the challenge too with these herbicides is uh, we see what happens above ground. These herbicides will move to the active growing points, you know, the tips of the shoots, you know, the flower clusters, etc., and they will cause the leaf deformation. There's a number of different symptoms. You can, it can cause necrosis or death of the tissue there. It usually terminates shoot growth. So below ground, the roots also have active growing points and, and we don't, Typically, see, or I mean, we never see really what uh, what's going on below ground. So you can imagine, and you have root growth every year. You know what's that doing to uh, the long term health of the root system? You know, whereas we come in and we prune the top of the grapes, and we sort of, you know, we have a renewal every year. We have new shoot growth. We don't we don't prune the roots. And so there's some questions there, at least in my mind, uh, about what happens to the long term health as it relates to the root system.
0: Is this a problem that you're just seeing out in the high plains, or are there other areas of Texas where uh, dicamba products are used?
1: No, I mean it's there. There, you see the greatest incidence, of course, on the high plains, just because of the uh, you know the concentration of of agriculture up there. But you'll see it in the other regions as well. Um, you know, on the Gulf Coast, we see less uh, you know agronomic crop production next to vineyards. We just have you know fewer acres, smaller vineyards. In general, we see probably more 24D um, drift here, and 24D is a, another one of those oxen type herbicides. You can find it in all sorts of products, you know, whether it's lawn products, pe- uh, brush uh, for brush control, and so sometimes it might be the you know the highway department that's applying this, or they're they're clearing a railway, or someone's clearing their pasture, and if they're not careful, then we can have drift problems from that as well. And so it's in the High Plains, the incidence is much higher because the concentration of vineyards in proximity to the concentration of farm fields.
0: I know this is something that we'll continue to hear about um, in the months and years to come. So we might touch base again on this topic.
1: Sure.
0: With all these problems we've talked about, I, I know that there are still folks that are attempting to farm organically in Texas. Is that a realistic goal for Texas?
1: Well, it's one of those. It's one of those things where you know, if the question was "Can you do it?", the answer would be yes. You know, is it economic? The answer is maybe, depending on what you're willing to do, um, what you're willing to grow, and of course, the ultimate bottle price. We have uh, We have one. Well, we have two major problems with organic production. Uh, first and foremost is this fungal disease called black rot, and if you grow grapes, everybody knows what black rot is. It's a fungus that causes the berries to shrivel and turn into little black, we call them mummies, um, which sounds kind of cool, but it's this little, little hard berry that then produces spores that the fungus spreads and spreads and spreads. And we control this with preventative types of sprays. And there are organic formulations and there are conventional or synthetic formulations. And if you want to be uh, USDA certified organic, then you're required to use organic formulations. Well, unfortunately, there is not a good organic control for black rot. Copper is is the best product for control. And so then you get into this, you know, philosophical debate about, well, is it sustainable? Because if that's your interest in organics, is lower impact on the environment, is it sustainable to apply heavy metal like copper, you know, over and over and over for the life of the vineyard? So that is is number one. Challenge uh, if you're in an area of Texas where black rot is a is a major problem, I would say you know east of the high plains, it's a it's a really big challenge and it's a really big uphill battle. Uh, Number two is going to be insect problems Uh, that you could relate that back to Pierce's disease and trying to prevent Pierce's disease, you know. But even out say on the high plains, there can be insect problems uh, and sometimes there would be a need to reach for one of those conventional products, and you could be you know certified organic. But then you have to make one of those rescue sprays is what we would call it. You would lose your, your certification. And then as visiting with different growers about it, you have a better opportunity out west. The drier it is, the, the easier, the more feasible or an economic uh, organic grape production becomes. But if you talk to some of the growers out there, they say there's, there's not a demand uh, to the point where there is a premium on those grapes uh, to justify or to motivate organic production. So can you do it? You can. It's going to It's gonna uh, require a lot more effort. Um, you know, if you're in one of those areas of the state where black rot is a major problem, that you're probably going to have to anticipate crop loss, maybe even total crop loss in some years. Um, I, I visited a vineyard on Long Island um, called Shin Estates. They've since changed names, and they were organic. And that was one of the questions that came up. They don't have black rot nearly as bad as we do there, but they were out there individually picking berries off of the clusters as they became wow. infected. So. They were very serious about it. Now, if I, when I meet people and they say, I want to grow grapes organic, I say, well, you absolutely can do it. I just don't know if there is a market for uh, you know, So you can select varieties that have excellent disease resistance, uh, but, but they also have to be marketable, right? Somebody has to be able to buy them. Uh, muscadines, of course, in East Texas, you could grow those organic all day long uh, if you wanted to, but we really don't have much of a developed muscadine grape market.
0: Not so much, not so much. Well, in spite of uh, many challenges, I know it seems to me that the, the Texas viticulture and oenology programs across the state are really um, going in full swing. I know at the recent TWICA conference, you participated in a panel and there were folks from Grayson and uh, Texas Tech. What encourages you about the state of uh, viticulture and enology education in Texas?
1: Well, there is certainly demand for education, um, and we're we're trying to keep up with that by uh, supplying more opportunities uh, for people. It's it's quite interesting if you look at the you know the history of it, <clears throat> you know, in Texas as the industry again, it's it's rebirth if you want to call it that. In the nineteen seventies, well, Grayson College came along. I think their earliest date that they claim they were doing viticulture nology work was in nineteen seventy four. And they we don't have time for the Munson story, but if you don't know who TV Munson is, uh, Google him and uh, you can learn all about why Texas has a really interesting uh, piece of, of, of wine history for the world. Grayson, um, which is in Denison, north of Dallas, that's where Munson lived. Um, one of the locals there was interested in recollecting the Munson varieties and, and worked with the college there. They recollected and have recollected about sixty-five varieties. They started to offer courses, and at that time, no nowhere else in Texas were there classes, and so they had people coming from Oklahoma and surrounding states through the eighties. And they would bring in, fly in people to teach and things like that. So that program is 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 since grown, um, and really Roy Renfro is the one who probably gets credit for keeping that going. They're still active. Um, I, I taught there for several years. Uh, back around around 2010. So that's that's been around. And that's a pretty good model for people who don't have time to, uh, you know, go to a class on the weekday. So they have a hybrid model where they, you know, online during the week and then they have weekend classes. They've since uh, spun off and they have a distillation program. That's that's pretty nifty, in my opinion. Uh, so Andrew Snyder is the director there um, and he he teaches the, the distillation uh, part of it. As well, and so interestingly enough, their uh, their professor is Andy Allen. So you have the the Andys there running that program. Texas A and M, um, you know, we have seventy five thousand students here in College Station. You know, obviously a you know huge university, and so we've been teaching viticulture and and, and wine for quite some time. Winemaking, uh, sort of a wine appreciation type course, and we have since uh, started a, a certificate program. So, in response to the demand uh, for for having some an educated workforce, so we have an analogy certificate where students can take uh, concentrated fifteen hours and they can they can get a certification. Mm-hmm. We are actually in twenty twenty four launching some professional certificates as well, and then we have a pretty robust graduate student program as well, where we have masters and PhD students that learn viticulture and analogy science. And uh, Texas Tech, they have a, a, a a program as well. They have a concentration within their plant science department where you get a degree in plant science and you can take some, some viticulture technology courses. They also have a certificate program, which quite a few people are familiar with, that's uh, online-based, and then they have some in-person practicums. And as their demand, at least the perceived demand, for education has grown, we've seen Palo Alto get into the mix. They're in San Antonio so it's kind of a fledgling program, but they're uh, they're looking at uh, building a certificate program, community college, uh, in person there in San Antonio, and apparently Shriner University, John Rivenberg, Kerrville Hill Winery or Rivenberg Wines. Most people probably that listen know him. Uh, he had just mentioned this the other day that uh, he's working with them on on developing a program or at least some courses. So cool. there are quite a number of offerings out there.
0: That's very cool. I saw that um, somebody in one of my Texas wine Facebook groups was looking for an internship for her son, who is a student out in Lubbock. And I think there were probably 30 or 40 wineries that said, we'd love to have him as an intern. Like there is a big demand for people to come work in the Texas wine industry. So I'm glad that, that all of you are doing such good work to turn people onto a career in Texas wine.
1: Yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would like to take this time too to say anyone listening who is looking for an intern, uh, please contact me because we have a number of students at any given time that are looking for internships. Um, And and there's always people that want interns. And so it's a matter of, you know, matching, you know, the student with the winery because, uh, you know, many times it needs to be wherever their hometown is, you know, if it's going to be a summer internship or something like that. But we have enough students that, you know, they're from all over the state.
0: Good deal. And your efforts to get people involved in uh, viticulture go even prior to college age i know that you've been involved in a program at mason isd to help teach high school students about viticulture and i guess this isn't a new program but i've just um, found out about it it's just come back up on the news cycle so tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah so the uh you know the rock stars there are, are going to be Dan McLaughlin, Robert Clay Vineyards, and Lance Rash, who are, who's the ag teacher at, at Mason ISD. They're the they're the champions of this, and the the history of that goes. Uh, I got a call from I think it was Dan, maybe maybe 2015, and he said, "Hey, we want to teach viticulture at Mason." I said, "Okay, that sounds fun." He said, "Can you help?" I said, "I maybe I know absolutely zero. I went to high school, but I know nothing about high school education." and uh i found out talking to them the first step is actually to get approval you can't just say hey i'm going to teach uh, scuba diving in high school to, as an excuse to go buy you know scuba equipment for the for the school you have to have approval by the texas education agency and so uh i received a copy of the form you submit to get a course approved and so i do what everybody does who has a question they can't answer i went to google and uh googled Texas Education Agency, you know, class course approval, and I and I found an example copy of what they recommend of what needs to be included in this in this uh, application, and so basically I substituted viticulture, you know, for whatever the example was, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, it, it it got approved very quickly, and they even made a comment like this was one of the better applications or best applications that we've seen, and I was like, yeah, because it's yours. <laughs> um, So after that point, uh, I went over to Mason and sat down with with Lance and Dan and said, okay, I taught at a community college in Texas, one in New York. I've got a bunch of materials. You can have them all. And he printed off most of the materials, and we literally sat in the classroom and laid them out into six six six-week packets you know, because that's the way the school year goes. And uh, starting in the fall, so it sort of started backwards with Harvest's because that's what's going on in the vineyard, and then to pruning, and then back around into the spring. And I felt pretty good about myself. I left, you know, thinking I had done a good job. And uh, then shortly thereafter, I got a, a call from Fredericksburg. Hey, what's this about viticulture? Is that something we can do? And then I also got a, an email from another school shortly thereafter, and I went, oh, so I, I better do something here because I can't, uh, you know, go and just sit down and try to organize these things out. I should probably provide them something that's more useful. And so I, Took it, wrote a wrote a 19-chapter textbook, um, developed PowerPoint presentations that go with the textbook itself so that now you have other teaching things that you can teach with. And then um, from there, I also added supporting documents. And by that, I mean, you know, if you had an assignment, hey, what is the most common grape grown in Texas or what's the acreage or how does that compare to other fruit crop? I would provide, you know, USDA reports where the students can do that. And so that is available and has been available for, for a little while. So if anybody listening wants that, I can send them uh, PDFs uh, of the book of the slides. And we're going through a revision right now so that we can update the textbook. And AM did put it online as a course, but we've now switched teaching platforms and now we have to redo it. So it will be also be available very soon. As an online course, and the benefit there is most ag teachers travel, especially in the spring, with shows and things like that. So, this will give them a chance to you know maybe let the students you know uh, take the course online while they're away, or you could teach from it, etc. So, I'm kind of excited about it. And the one thing I will say too that's maybe even more exciting is uh, I met some folks at Felco who you know manufacture pruning shears and other vineyard tools, and they're going to help us organize a pruning competition next year.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So they do that on the West Coast, um, and I know they've done it in New York, but this will be the first time we do it in Texas. So if anybody's competitive and uh, wants to wants to do a little competitive pruning, I think we'll have probably a collegiate level, and I would love to have a high school level as well.
0: That's excellent. Have you gotten much feedback for how the high school students are taking to learning about viticulture?
1: Well, so so the, the guy I mentioned, Lance, uh, you know, he worked as a – extension agent for for agrilife and he's one of those you know pioneering spirits you have to be to charge into a new subject like this uh, and I think he's enjoyed it and I his students I'm, I'm certain have enjoyed it um, as well And so this is a very small school if you don't know Mason it's uh, it's probably a 2a I'm guessing at this point that's the size of the school I went to so uh, I can appreciate the challenge of introducing some new subject like that uh, into the school and so they've carried forward, And I know there's interest elsewhere, received quite a bit of, uh, you know, questions. And so ultimately what I would like to do, because, you know, if you're an ag teacher, you're busy, of course, and you're probably scratching your head going, well, what do I know about viticulture? How am I going to teach it? Is that uh, we're going to start doing some teacher training workshops and things like that to familiarize them with it. I mean, if you can teach horticulture, which is done in a lot of schools, then it's a pretty easy transition to teach viticulture because a lot of those concepts apply.
0: Um, I imagine that you occasionally get calls from people who are thinking about planting a vineyard. What do you tell people um, that they need to know before they embark on this journey? Are there certain things that you think they might get hung up on that you'd like to warn them about up front?
1: Yeah, there are are quite a few things. Um, The first thing I tell them is it's good that you're reaching out and talking to people. Uh, because, you know, we've grown grapes in Texas for many years, and odds are you're not the only one in your area. So, you know, first thing is get to know the people around you that are growing grapes. Everyone is friendly in the industry and willing to share information. No need to uh, reinvent the wheel here. And there's a couple of pitfalls or mistakes that people frequently run into, and one of them is just the time commitment. A lot of people don't realize the time commitment that's involved in having a vineyard. You know, in many cases, there are you know, looking at a second career, they're near retirement and they're still maintaining a job. Or maybe they live in the city and they're wanting to farm in the country. And it's very difficult. Anyone who grows grapes, of course, knows, knows that, uh, you know, the first year of a vineyard establishment requires a lot of time. And people usually underestimate how much time is involved. And it's not just about the, volu- the volume of time. It's about the timeliness. You know, if it rains, guess what? New, new crop of weeds that you have to control. That's another pitfall. Is a lot of people want to, uh, you know, nobody wants to use uh, an herbicide. You know, they would rather control the weeds naturally if they could. Or, you know, a lot of people say, well, by hand or hoe, and they'll do that. You know, maybe once or twice, and then they'll they'll get out their spray tank. So that that's a big one. That's very difficult for new vineyards to get a hold to get a handle on as weed control varieties and rootstocks. Of course, that's a challenge because a lot of people too. Don't necessarily know that you need to make an order to your to the nursery far in advance because it's going to be custom produced for you in most cases, and and a lot of times they'll just settle on what's available and it may not be the right variety, right rootstock, and now you're stuck with this, you know, for the life of those vines, or or perhaps they'll plant in the wrong location, and so sometimes there's a tendency to think that uh, you know the the winery or the house is going to be on top of the hill and it's going to overlook the vineyard down below. But in many cases it should be the opposite because that low spot, it's more likely to collect cold air because it's more dense than warm air and it, it flows downhill just like water, and it pulls and settles there. So really, you'd be better off putting your vineyard up high in, in many cases. And so there's a lot to it. But you know, you don't have to start from scratch. You can use many resources that are available. We have resources out there on the web um jim commas wrote a book called growing grapes in texas which is a great read for uh, especially for a starter and then you have many decades of experience around you that you can tap into we've got you know texas wine grape growers association state organization we've got you know hill country wineries we've got north texas wine country we've got gulf coast wine growers we've got the artisan vineyards out in in the high plains the cross timbers i mean you can just keep going. There's all these organized groups where you can tap into that knowledge and into some of those resources.
0: And if people want to get connected with A&M and possibly attend some of your programs or um, just stay in the loop on professional certifications and so forth, what's the best place to follow what you're doing?
1: Well, we have a we have a website, winegrapes.tamu.edu, And we post materials there. We have a lot of free materials um, from, you know, starting a vineyard in Texas guide. That's a, you know, kind of a stepwise process of starting a vineyard. We've got, you know, a great pest management guide that's fairly extensive um, that, that William Chris Vineyard sponsored this year. It's available as a PDF for free download. It's very extensive. Uh, It has a lot of really good information in there. We've got what we call fact sheets on various topics. You know, the four essential tests, the starting a vineyard, that's on our website. We have a a Facebook page where we do a lot of announcements of events and things like that. And every year we have perennial programs, pun intended,
0: uh,
1: (laughs) of of different things that are, you know, recurring questions or challenges. So we'll do a prospective wine grower workshop. It's a full day intensive workshop on like, here's how to get started on the right foot. We have a pest management workshop because that's one of the hardest things uh, to really wrap your arms around when you have a vineyard. We now, we have an advanced viticulture short course. So you've been growing grapes and, and you want to really get into some more in-depth information. It's We will typically have a focus, you know, it may be irrigation and we may talk an entire day on water management and vineyards. Um, we've got a number of different workshops that are sort of impromptu. We'll have a, you know, we call them tailgate meetings. But for example, when we had this February freeze last year, no one was expecting it. And so we had a program within a week to talk about how do you assess cold damage in your vineyard? How do you cut the buds to look to see if they're alive and dead? But you can find out about that, uh, you know, on Facebook, on our website. On our website, we have contact information for myself. Um, like I've mentioned at the beginning, we have those researchers and and, uh, uh, specialists who can help provide technical support and educational programming things uh, scattered across the entire state. So we have them in all the four regions. And so you can reach out to that individual directly and say, hey, I've got this question. I've got a challenge. Or maybe you want to have an educational program, something like that.
0: Yeah, that's great. I heard um, your your dean, I guess, speak at a seminar at the texas hill country winery symposium and he's uh, new at AM, i believe but also really interested in getting more involved in texas wine
1: so i would i would imagine you you heard dr amit dingra uh possibly and he he would actually be quite entertaining to have on your uh, on your show here um he's a very interesting person who's into all sorts of things he's uh he's a he's a businessman um and he has that that entrepreneurial spirit, and it's very interesting. So he comes from Washington State. He worked at WSU, uh, and he knows the grape and wine industry, and did some viticulture research there. So he saw the industry grow there, and so coming here and joining us, he has a, a vision and some history there to build upon. You know, to grow our programs. Uh, and help support the industry. And so it's very exciting to, to have someone like him join us with passion, with vision, tons of energy. So we're, we're looking forward to the future, and I think uh, we'll see some great things happen.
0: Thanks so much, Justin. Next up, demerits and gold stars. I like to recognize the good things going on in the Texas wine world, and I do that by awarding gold stars. This gold star goes to the new Monopoly game, Hill Country Edition. The Texas wine trail has a square on this new Monopoly board, and so does LBJ State Park, the Blanco River, Peternalis Falls State Park, Enchanted Rock, Wildflowers, and many other favorite spots in the Hill Country. You can get a copy of this fun board game online, and it's $40. Follow the link in the show notes. I can't believe this is already episode 40 for this Texas Wine Podcast. It's a pleasure to make it, but I want to be sure that people know about it and can find it easily. You can help me out by subscribing and following the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Thanks to everyone who's written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Stars are great, but your actual comments are even better. Also, I'd love to engage with you on social media. Don't forget to follow my social media channels, at Texas Wine Pod, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Then comment and share. You'll help me find new listeners who are interested in Texas wine. I'd also love your feedback. Please send me comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can even leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Maybe I'll share your comment or question on the next show. Finally, if you've got a hot piece of Texas wine news that needs to be shared, send it my way. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. Please get in touch. If you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting ThisIsTexasWine.com and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. As you know, this podcast runs on Texas wine. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit TXWineLover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Join me back here in three weeks for my next episode. I'm taking an extra week for spring break, but on the next episode, you'll hear my interview with Michael Hardy, the Texas Monthly writer that wrote the article about the dicamba issues in the High Plains. Be sure to check out the article on texasmonthly.com by following the link in the show notes. Cheers, y'all.